The Sex Ed with Tim podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. You're listening to Sex Ed with Tim. <laughs> of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. I'm your host, Tim, certified sex educator. I identify as a chaotic homosexual. And where in the universe has the most gays? That would be Uranus. So we are going to be talking about (laughs) the history of gay sex. And who better than to talk about the history of gay sex than the host of the podcast called The History of Gay Sex. Stuart, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I am so glad that you're here, Stuart. Uh, First of all, let's talk about why specifically focus a podcast on the history of gay sex. What's so interesting about it? Are you a history buff? Do you just like all the gay sex? I am definitely a huge history buff. I decided to start the podcast, oh, this is like about a year and a half ago now. Um, And I wanted to focus on something that was a different perspective on the history of homosexuality. And I wanted something that was less biographical in nature, although I've come to have biographical elements in my podcast, but I wanted to also do something new. And so I thought this would be a really fun approach that people would hopefully listen to. Um, They do, which is good. Yeah. And so it it created a framework that I was excited to, to work with. And I have ended up learning way more than I ever thought I would. And it's been a lot of fun. Oh my god, I can imagine you probably like dug up the deepest, darkest depths of the history of <laughs> anal. What are the roots of douching? <laughs> Who was the first bottom that queefed and just like had absolute douche water running out? Oh no. <laughs> Who discovered the first benefits of fiber? <laughs> well, I feel like a pre- modern diet without processed foods and all the shit that we ate probably helped a lot. <laughs> like a paleo diet, just like fully raw, uncooked. <laughs> <laughs> probably having a lot more of a whole food diet helped a lot. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Whole foods and then your poop comes out whole out of your hole. It is, you know, I, I should probably go paleo again. Stop <laughs> with this processed sugar. That's why I'm diabetic in the first place. <laughs> so, uh, Before we get into it, though, I did realize that in my own research, and I'm probably like assuming you've seen the same thing, that when it comes to gay sex, there isn't much documented sex between women. Is that right? Like, it's mostly like between men? Yeah. Why is that? History was mostly written by men, about men. Women obviously, no one. Yeah, women obviously did not have um, the same level of social status across history writing civilizations. So, if you think about who's writing history, it, it's going to be mostly civilizations that 
just did not elevate women until until very very recent modern times. I mean, beyond just modernity, you know, we're talking about especially since a lot of history is written by Westerners, even if that includes non-Western history, it's just going to be very male focused. And um, it's, it's just kind of, uh, I I think there's also something that's a little bit because of it being male centered, whether there are certain elements that are finding, you know, homosexuality with men more tantalizing or scandalous both in positive and negative ways, uh, male same sex sex is just way more talked about, and so, the, I mean, the amount of documentation of homosexuality, I mean, it's like ninety nine point ninety nine percent male compared to what right. we talk about with women. It's just, and it's there's there's interesting relationships with homosexuality in terms of, or not just homosexuality, but in terms of of sex. Society used to get way more upset whenever something happened to to men than women. Like if you look at like sexual molestation, society gets way more upset when when boys get corrupted than when girls get corrupted through sexual, you know, what does that predation. Mean, like boys get corrupted like they're uh like influenced or like touched inappropriately or something? Both. I mean, if you look oh, at okay. the way society thinks of men, you know, as society can't run without men. Obviously, I don't believe that. But it was that, <laughs> that men are more precious than women and that, you know, we need to protect men more. We, or rather, we need to protect boys more than girls. It, it, it goes all across the board in terms of level of sexism and double standards. But um, right. yeah, um, the, the history's focus has been mostly on men. Uh, gross. Surprising nobody. Because uh, who ever created that lie that the world needs mentors? No, <laughs> I honestly believe if women can run the world, uh, we'd be in a much better place. I would love to shuffle off this mortal coil and just absolutely just blast my body into space, into Uranus, <laughs> right? <laughs> Put all the gays in Uranus. <laughs> so <laughs> knowing that it's mostly men, I... I want to preface this conversation that when we talk about gay sex, we're going to assume that it is man-on-man sex. However, if the topic of lesbian sex does come up, I would love to talk about that too. But I want to know, where was it in human history that's like the earliest recorded date of uh, same-sex relations? Actually, really fast. Can I preface your preface? (laughs) Yeah. So when we talk about homosexuality... There's a lot of instances of historical homosexuality that would not necessarily be inclusive of exclusive homosexuality. So you can have people that are engaging in sexual behaviors with both men and women, but yes. So it's not necessarily that you have people who are exclusively gay with our examples of historical, historical examples of homosexuality. A lot of times there's actually. I guess a bisexual nature to it, or you would just have, these are all very modern terms, but you would have, you know, a a lot of people would be engaging in homosexuality that could also be engaging in heterosexuality as well. Right. Yeah. On this show, heterosexuality is a slur. It is, (laughs) (laughs) We're not talking about, there's no gold star gays in history. (laughs) 
not ancient history or pre-modern history. <laughs> Every gay has had to come out of a vagina, therefore. <laughs> or a cesarean, whatever. <laughs> to answer your question, we have examples of homosexuality that go way, way, way far back. Um, the, the, from my research, the one that goes the furthest back is about 12,000 years ago. And wow. it's a cave That's art. Yeah. Too long ago when you think about like the history of the world. Well, so we, I mean, I'm sure it goes back even further, but in terms of recorded uh, examples of it, it goes back to cave art, the oldest one being outside of Palermo, Sicily. So if I remember correctly, Palermo is probably in the northern part of the island. I want to say the northwestern part of the island. And in a cave in, I'm going to butcher this, but Adara, Adara. Um, <laughs> we'll let the people scream in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone knows that off the top of my head, off their top of their head, and can correct me, I probably would love to have a conversation with them. But <laughs> um, so it's actually it's cave art. Um, they believe it's around twelve thousand years old. It's two men having um, they've erect penises and they're engaging with each other sexually. Um, Fun. Yes. Now, the first threesome that's documented Ooh. is actually, so it comes from current day Zimbabwe. And they believe it's about 8,000, well, it's about 10,000 years old, so from 8,000 uh, BCE. And there are two men having sex, and then there's another one that is, or I'm sorry, there's two men that are embracing face to face. Um, well, one of them is getting fucked from behind. <laughs> so that, I mean, it goes As far back. Some usually happens. <laughs> it goes far back. And I mean, the amount of homosexual cave art is actually fairly extensive. There's in Africa, there's a lot in Europe, Mesopotamia. Um, so current day with like Iraq. It's 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 fairly extensive. You have it going all the way up to Norway and Scandinavia, and these are like during Viking times. Oh, way before this, way before this. Oh, even before. Yeah, thousands wow. and thousands of years old. Yeah. So gays have been thriving. Oh, they have. <laughs> we've yeah, been, <laughs> we've been around. Because in my research, I thought that the earliest uh, sign of uh, same-sex relations was like in ancient Greece, like with pederasty and stuff? Or is that, where's that in the timeline? So that is in written record. So that is, you actually have contemporaneous historians talking about it. And that is going to be, the height of that is like 5th, 6th century BCE. So 25, 2600 years ago. Oh, wow. So like earlier than what you just mentioned with the cave art and everything. No, that, no. So that's like 12,000 years ago. 12,000. 12, so cave art is 12,000, but the pederasty age was like six, you said seven, eight? Six, oh, seven, no, eight, the uh, fifth and sixth century. So about 2,500 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is recent. Yeah. So that was. So clearly my research is. No, it's okay. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> needs to go further. <laughs> so that is, and they believe that the culture of pederasty, Pederasty, for those who are listening, is an institutionalized form of homosexuality where you kind of have a mentor who teaches a younger man the ways of politics, science, how to be a warrior, 
and becomes kind of the surrogate father in a way. In layman's terms, a daddy. Yeah. And they, they, have, they have a sexual relationship. It's very important. It helps the bonding. Wow. So like this pattern, uh, um, uh, please correct me, but in my research, the older man is the Erastes? Erastes, yeah. Erastes. And then the younger one is the Eromenos. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the Erastes, the mentor, will teach them and everything about how to be a quote-unquote man in society. That includes f- having sex with them. And then the Eromenos will be like, yes, daddy, yes, sir. <laughs> no, but it's a very um, it's a very privileged thing. Well, this is for – so <laughs> it, it actually breaks down a lot based off of the city-state that you're in for Greece. So in Sparta, to my understanding, most boys are going to go through it. In Athens, it's going to be the elites because you have people that are farmers and you have lower classes that are that are just not going to be engaging in it. They're going to be working on a farm and it's it's not going to be inclusive of them. But it, it was it was definitely a status symbol. If you if you had an Aramenos or you had an, or you know if an Erastes had chosen you, it, it was it was it would elevate you. I mean, it was it was the only form of education at the time. So it's a little elitist. Uh, uh, the pederast relationship then? There were people that viewed it that way. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like only wealthy people can uh, afford uh, an Erastes or an Aramenos? In a sense, yeah. It was almost it was, it was viewed as a form of like decadence. And I mean decadence in the truest sense of the word where it's a, a criticism of, of wealth and being established. Right. Okay. Hmm. Is it because they wanted the Aramenos to grow up to be like wealthy and well established, or what was it just like them being a little predatory? Because that just <laughs> that's the first impression I got. It felt a little like mm-hmm. so it was. So the parents got to okay the the so the the Erastes would would pursue the Aramenos, and the parents would have to sign off on it. The father, if we're being honest, the father would sign off on it. How much the Aromenos would sign off on it? I don't know. It's hard to say how much agency a 14-year-old boy has. But they would want it in terms of, like I said, it was the only education that was provided to them. Um, and it would make you a good citizen of, of Athens. You know, it, you would learn philosophy. You learn politics. You would learn how to be a warrior, I think it was probably like maybe the top 10% of society was doing this. It was not engaging in pederasty. Yeah, it was not super, super common in terms of just right, the general but, population. Right. But it's still like something that was known, or was it taboo? Was it met with a lot of scrutiny? Like, or was it just, just the common part of life that was just generally accepted by the population? So commoners were pretty critical of it. Like I said, they thought it was decadent. They thought it was exclusive. It's interesting because Plato writes about it a lot. In the beginning of Plato's life, he talks about the beauty of it. And towards the end of Plato's life, he talks about – he doesn't talk about it as as positively. He doesn't talk about it as positively? No, no. You have to understand that men and women are pretty segregated in these societies. And one of the draws, I think, of it is that – you don't really get to have an intellectual relationship with your wife. You get to have one with other men. And men are mostly hanging out with each other. 
you start getting, you know, cultural homosexuality. If you think about like men in prisons, start having sex with each other, they're only surrounded by other men. I think for the most part, humans are probably way more bisexual than exclusively gay or exclusively straight. And we're somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah. And you have a culture that's that's encouraging it. So right. I mean, you it's people, you know, when I talk about this, people's jaws usually drop and they're like, what? But you have to remember, it's, it's just such a different cultural framework than anything we think of. A lot of times, mostly people think of, of it being like child abuse. And you also have to think, well, our sense of adulthood is, is much older today than it was back then. Right. Like 18 is like the norm that we start to see them as adults. Yeah. 18 is the number that came up probably after World War II in terms of being- Oh, wow you know, a legal age. Recognized as an adult. Right, yeah. right, right. So, I mean, you just have to totally remove the framework of what we think about in terms of sexual dynamics, you know, um, and how that relates to consent. I say that in terms of like, you know, we, we think we have like statutory rape where, you know, if you have sex with someone who's underage, that, uh, that legally makes it non-consensual. So that's a framework that we have in our culture that you have to separate yourself from. Thinking about like, you know, a hundred years ago and all the time before that, you know, you're 10, 11, 12, you're engaging in adult responsibilities. And at 14, a lot of people are getting married. I mean, there, there's examples of kings and queens getting married. And they're, I want to say in, in medieval Europe, they're like, the cutoff was like 13 for the girl before they would let her get pregnant. But sometimes they were just waiting oh for her God. to have her first period. I mean, it's like... It's just a totally different time. Oh my god! Like I'm 30, and I feel like if I get married now, what am I, a child bride? Like, <laughs> holy <laughs> broad city reference. But <laughs> wow, that is young. But I want to know: was there any sort of scrutiny met with these types of same-sex relationships because they were same-sex, or was it just more of like a classist thing? Like, was there any? form of homophobia as early as uh, 12,000 years ago or 5th, 6th century? Um, so with pederasty, you, it wouldn't be homophobia, I think, in the, in the term you're thinking of, but there would be, it's bottom shaming. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, I want to hear this. You were, you were not supposed to be the receptive sexual partner anyway. So technically speaking, the Erastes, so the Erastes, who's the older male, was supposed to hump the Aromenos. Um, I think it's called like diamerazine, which is like, I can't remember the Greek term for it, but it was basically in between the thighs. So you would like have what's called intercrural like sex. Like a little bit of dry humping sort of. Yeah, or like if you have, people can't see because we're, the whatever yeah, yeah. you would like if you had like the legs like this you would go in between yes you would close your legs yeah right now there kind are of like that scene in scary movie where like he tucks his thing yeah. in between his legs and then he comes <laughs> so there are examples though where they talk about sometimes the the rules of the road were broken and that's okay you need to stop doing it um but that means that oral sex too you know you're oh. you're not supposed to have the Rasty's penis in your mouth because that's how women act and it'd be really shameful for a, a guy to behave like that. That's so 
complicated, I guess. Like you, you can have sexual relations, but not in the way that's feminine. Exactly. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> what is. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So, like, they they can't take it up the ass. They can't put a dick in their mouth. But so all they're allowed to do is well, like a hand job or humping. Yeah, but that still exists today. If you think about straight men view topping differently than bottoming, you you know what? Okay, yeah, I guess that's true. Like they they feminize bottoming a lot, even in like straight relationships. Like if a straight guy is afraid to get pegged or something, oh yeah, like, oh, that turns me into the woman. Oh yeah, no, yeah, mm. that's something that's still very much a part of, uh, I guess, like sexual wow. culture today. That is so interesting. That is like so that that kind of uh, attitude dates so far back, even if gay sex, the act of gay sex, is so ancient. It's as old as time, yeah. as <laughs> Mrs. Potts once said. The tale is old as time. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Yes. Hey, you sick motherfuckers. I've got a special treat for you. Need a new toy to spice up your sex life? Head over to loveshop.ca slash sexedmonton and get yourself a cock ring, a dildo, a vibrator, or even a life-sized sex doll. <laughs> Damn, I guess love really does come in all shapes and sizes. Get 15% off your entire order when you use code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout. They're shipping to all of Canada and the United States because North America is horny. That's loveshop.ca slash sexedwithtim and use code SEXEDWITHTIM for 15% off your entire purchase. Happy orgasm! Do you like feeling sexy and looking sexy? Of course you do. Only my listeners are sexy as fuck. I have partnered with fetishwear designer Dale Kuda to bring you the hottest deals on custom jock straps, harnesses, hats, and more. Head over to dalekuda.com, that's D-A-L-E-K-U-D-A dot com, and use code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout for 25% off the entire store. Yeah, you heard me. 25% off. And cherry on top, free shipping. Oh my god. I have a few of the stuff that he has made for me. And girl, I'm wearing it right now. I'm wearing like a little jock strap so that I could easily just like slip a little butt plug or dildo every now and then here and there and I'm on the train I'm just like uh, 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 thank you Dale <laughs> that's dalecuda.com with the code sexedwithtim for 25% off your entire purchase with free shipping with a deal like that I swear I could come buckets honey. <laughs> the show is about to begin yes Let's jump forward a little bit because I know that this is written history. Where does uh, pornography fit into history? Like, I guess cave art was a form of porn? No, that, no. I wouldn't say oh, so. Oh, no. Okay. No. There are examples of exotic illustrations, but when you use the term pornography, people are going to think of still images or recordings. And that word usually is going to be discussed about in terms of 
kind of like the legal framework we think about it, um, and then also the moral applications that we have surrounding it. I want to say actually the word porn is comes from Greek, but <laughs> which, <laughs> probably is. I mean, well, I, like a quarter of English is Greek, and the rest is all Latin and German. But <laughs> yeah, it's all borrowed from some other language. Oh yeah, pornography in that cultural framework really doesn't start to come around until late 1800s, early 1900s. But as we know it, does not start to exist until really like after World War II. That's when it becomes commercialized in a very large way. Oh, that's cool. How, how, how did it become commercialized? Technological advancement. So you know, with um, cameras becoming more affordable, so more people have cameras, they can produce it. Um, and then especially with with video footage. The very first nude taken with a daguerreotype. Yeah. With the, oh, yeah. The veil over and the powder. Oh, absolutely. Wait, really? <laughs> wow. I mean, it's, it's one of the, I can't remember his name, but one of the um, very first people to do video Take recordings. Take a picture of their dick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> one of the very first people to do video recordings, this is like the late 1800s there's this really famous video recording of these two young boys. Like there were boys jumping over each other naked. It's like frog leaping. Is that the term? Or like frog? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's like a combination of like biology of like looking at like how humans move and then like recording it for the first time ever. It's not, it's not pornographic at all there. It's just right. like nude imagery. The first porn video I can think of, I think it's from the twenties and it's like, it's French. <laughs> <laughs> of course, a lot French of a lot of images actually that were pornographic or considered pornographic started in France, <laughs> and then they found their way. I think, like in the Civil War, the they call them French postcards, and the troops had them. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, well, voulez-vous que je fasse Oh yeah, but it was really you have you kind of have two sections of pornographic history. You have porn theaters that just do not exist today like they used to. And this was because this was before VCRs existed. And and like live sex acts on stage? No, no, it would be, you know, people didn't have VCRs in their home or you 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 couldn't go out and mm-hmm. buy a film. You'd have to go watch it in theaters. Right. And there would be porn theaters that were also kind of um like bathhouses in a way where Okay. You could go in, you could masturbate, you could hook up in the row. Some of them would actually have a light that would come on uh, if the police were coming, so everyone could stop doing whatever sex they were doing. And then you have like once- Toy Story, Andy's coming. <laughs> yeah. And then once you have the VCR come out, then it just, it just all starts transitioning into to videotapes that you would have of porn versus going to porn theaters. And that's probably around like 1980. I, I want to say my father told me that the first VCR that he bought in like 1980 was like $2,000, which is a lot of money compared to whatever that was worth yeah. with, you know, with Holy inflation. Hell. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was all, oh you know, they, it was all sent through the mail. So it was very anonymous. That was when things really took off because there are probably a lot of people that would buy porn that weren't going to go to porn theaters, but it was the first time that they could actually have it in their home. Oh, fun. I wonder what the first porno was like. Like, first rentable porno. <laughs> like, showing a little bit of ankle. Ooh. <laughs> oh, it was very graphic by then. They had, you had, um, 
hardcore pornography really took off around like 1969, 1970. 1969, 1970. Yeah, that's like... But it was in theater still. Stonewall years. It was in theater still at that point. Oh, okay, okay. See, for me, in my horrible research, I thought the earliest porn was like Tom of Finland era. That, uh, yes, but that's for, I would consider that more like erotic imagery. Oh, okay, okay. And those are still, well, those are illustrations. So that's late 1940s, all through the 50s is when you have beefcake magazines and then you have, sometimes they're just homoerotic, there's no nudity. There were other times that there was nudity. A lot of times they weren't even erect. And it would, they, you know, you wouldn't see like ejaculate or what we call non-simulated sex. You wouldn't actually see like real see them fucking sex. or anything. Yeah, you wouldn't right. see that. It's just fully okay, okay. You maybe had some of that, but it was really hard to to get. And it was super illegal at the time. Illegal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, there were a lot of different reasons why it was illegal. So so I'm a photographer. And I and you're my model, and then there's another model. So for a while, if I paid you to have sex with someone else, that was prostitution. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was that. That was the way that the law was interpreted. Another way they would go about it is that if I'm in California, I, sh- I film this, I send it to you, and you're in Nevada. They would regulate it through crossing state lines and through using the post office. So then that would be illegal as well. It really didn't get cleared up until 1973 with Miller versus California. And that was when the Supreme Court decided what the rules were for what was considered obscene or not. So obscenity is still illegal today. We just have a very permissive view of what is not obscene. Yeah, because like, what the heck is obscene anymore? (laughs) Yeah. they, They don't have laws for pornography. There's laws for obscenity. And, you know, it used to be that if something was sexually suggestive, that could be considered obscene. But we, that mostly got cleared up in the 1970s. Now, one little fun fact is that all the horrible acting and the script and the whole storyline in in porn (laughs) that is, you know, pretty poorly done, that's what made it legal for a very, very long time. Because that made it art, and art was justifiable. Even though they were having sex, and they were maybe having hardcore sex, which means that they were having non-simulated sex, like they were actually- Full penetration full on penetration. yeah, yeah. As long as there's a storyline to go along with it, that is what made it legal. Oh, yeah. As long as she's paying the pizza boy with- Yeah. Not anything except cash. Yeah. So, I mean, as long as there's some kind of plot line, that's that's what satisfied the courts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, like, if you're going to show the penetration on screen, you have to make some sort of script, some sort of dialogue just yeah. to make it legal. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. Imagine all the avenues of like bad actors that really just want to make it big in Hollywood. All right, I guess I'll start my own like OnlyFans. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> there was actually, um, I want to say, probably in the eighties, the original OnlyFans was that you would have some amateur people who would send, and I mean, like this was probably shot on like sixteen millimeter cameras, um, <laughs> who would send. They would make their own porn and they would send it, but it was it was all mail order, um, uh-huh. and you couldn't buy it in the store. But that was kind of the original 
probably like late 80s, early 90s was the original kind of amateur porn era. Amateur porn, like that was already like VHS at that time, right? 80s, 90s. Yeah. Like Ron Jeremy type of porn, the full bush that you're going to get. Wow, that is so interesting. I really got to do some research. Just imagine my Google search history, early 80s porn, and then someone looks through my browser and is like, what have you been looking at? I swear to God, it's research. Because <laughs> like uh, uh, here in Canada, my research is like very niche in terms of like uh canadian content and lgbt history so like for example we have what was called the body politic which was uh, a magazine for specifically queer media which ran from like 1971 to 1987 and uh it now survives as extra xtra uh, it's all about like queer lifestyle and queer history but this is really cool to hear that like as as far back as i don't know what did we say 12,000 years ago that gayness was existing was existing as far back as then like wow that, that that's so i'm horny for history <laughs> <laughs> oh i like to hear that <laughs> there's actually this really good pornographic documentary of gay porn uh-huh called eroticus it's spelled e r O T I K O. Wait, let me look this up. U.S. I believe it is E R O T I K U S. Yeah, and it was so they didn't know what was going to happen in the courts at the time, and so back to the justification of something existing, they felt like it was, or you know, they they felt like if they did a documentary on porn, that that would make it more legal. So if you go and watch this, I think it's if you just type it in to Google, you'll you can find it. The people who own it currently is this, it's called Bijou Videos and it's in Chicago and they own like all vintage porn now. Um, you can buy it there as well. But um, they do a, it's a documentary on the history of gay porn and it's very hot and they have these great montages and they show that it, it's, they show the evolution of gay sex on the screen from what porn was like in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Oh, wow. I highly recommend I, watching it. <laughs> is it free? Is it oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find it for free, I'm sure. Oh, my God. That's perfect because I definitely want to watch that. I mean, like, it'll probably be hard to focus. It's like, oh, my God, look at all the hot bodies and gay porn. <laughs> but, wow. I like it because, cool. the you know, they didn't really shave back then, and I kind of like the all-natural aesthetic. <laughs> I do too. I love Mia Harry, man. It, it's funny though, because I, I think that they, you know, a lot of gay porn actors are not actually gay, and they did not put as much effort back then on making it look like they were enjoying themselves as much. So you have a lot of very non-erect models. <laughs> so it's uh. I, I highly suggest anyone who's gay needs to watch it. <laughs> it's like required reading to maintain your gay membership or else we'll revoke your card. Yes. 
then, and then your grinder like gets you, deleted. <laughs> your grinder gets deleted. Your scruff gets deactivated. Yeah. You need to read the Velvet Rage and watch Eroticus yes, <laughs> every yes. year to <laughs> maintain your membership. That is interesting. Like, I mean, the whole gay for pay thing, I absolutely hate that because, like, why are you taking away opportunities from gay people? That's an, another thing. But, like, Wow, that's really cool. Like within three decades, 50s, 60s, 70s, it evolves so much. I wonder how gay porn will evolve now or if it, there's been any sort of difference from then to now. Like Amateur porn definitely has become a lot more popular in the last 10 years. True. With OnlyFans, it's very yeah. – yeah. I'm starting to see that as a way to respond to that, a lot of studios are increasing their production value mm. to, to, to show – to create a product that amateur pornography makers cannot make. Right, right. Oh, okay. Well, I got to really start doing a deep dive and really just go into all the porn there is, consume every single bit of porn that the internet has to offer, <laughs> and then some. Oh, my God. That's really cool. Now, with the rise of porn and with especially gay porn being so accessible to the public were there any sort of like famous figures that we were that were like secretly like engaging in what's considered like taboo or queer sexual activities so andy like, warhol actually did some really? the campbell's chicken noodle soup guy that guy yeah he did a lot of stuff to push the envelope in terms of i don't know if you would call it pornography or erotic imagery uh -huh. But he did a lot of stuff to kind of bridge the two in terms of being inventive, pushing legal boundaries, and also, you know, expressing homosexuality in, in a more unfettered way, um, or at least trying to. There, I mean, there are people who there are gay people in his in Hollywood. Um like Tab Hunter, although he has a documentary, so I don't know if, about him. So I don't know if that's as new. But um, oh, I can't think of the actor's name. Um, Rock Hudson. There is, um, I wouldn't call it amateur porn, but there's some. So he was involved with Bob Miser, and there's some videos you can find of him on the internet. In, some, in your typical Pornhub streaming, whatever. In some nude, uh, you might have to torrent it, but <laughs> in some nude uh, Bob Miser films. I don't think he's, uh -huh. I don't think he's doing anything sexual, but he's definitely naked. I don't think there's anything salacious in terms of, in terms of like closeted gay people uh, <laughs> that we are unaware of today. Right. No, but like, I, I, I would be very pleasantly surprised if I heard, I don't know, like a world leader that has engaged in scenes. Because like I was an escort from 2012 to 2016 and there have been some people in power that are closeted. And my clients were like politicians, CEOs. And I, I, that just made me curious to know, like, I wonder if there's anyone in history that has had, like, uh, engaged in, in, in queer relationships, whether it be like a concubine or, <laughs> I don't know, like a, a fuck buddy. Yes. <laughs> All of the above. They, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they actually, and I have, a, I have a, 
in terms of English King, I've got a story for you about that. But yes, um, please, I want to hear it. One thing that you see across a lot of history, especially non-Western history, so you know, okay, you have a ruler that maybe has like a like a queen, and they have concubines. So these can be people that are they're not necessarily maybe married to, but they have a some kind of like status to their relationship that can include males. So one thing that we see throughout history is that having, I guess you could call them like male concubines, was definitely a status symbol. And that is, as I was mentioning earlier in ancient Greeks with, with pederasty, you can also see that in China. You can see that in, in Iran, there in Afghanistan, even to this day, actually. Um, like, like pederasty, uh, pederasty adjacent or actual pederasty? Um, well, pederasty, but like uh, in a slightly different form. In Afghanistan, they have bachibazi, which is this kind of like pederastic, almost like Japanese geisha phenomenon where you have these young boys train and like dancing and playing instruments. And then for a while, they um, they have like a, a, a guy that they're um, attached to who's like, I'm not going to say he owns them, but he is their person, you know. And, um, and they have sex with, you know, he has sex with them. Sometimes he lets them have sex with other people, if I remember correctly. I mean, some of this was happening on American bases in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of controversy around it. They say that the Persians are the ones who introduced it to them. But it's, it's something that's still... Oh, there's, a, there's actually a really good PBS documentary that came out about 10 years ago on this. And it's, it's, it's saddening because some of the boys are sold off at like oh, no. five. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To be in pederast relationships? Yeah, yeah. Aww. In terms of cultural homosexuality, it's interesting because these are all elites. These are all like Taliban elites. Um, and this one guy was like, you know, I never really had interest in having sex with like 13-year-old boys. But like since everyone else is doing it, I just kind of was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should. I mean, it's like, you know, talking about like being, you know, put into cultural situations that have a big impact on you. But having male and female lovers throughout the history of time. Is uh, definitely a, a big status symbol, right? And not just in the West, in like non-Western countries, like you said, like you already gave Zimbabwe, China, Afghanistan, Iran. Yeah, uh, are there other countries that have a history of que- of queer same-sex relationships? Pretty sure Japan. Whatever Japan does, yeah. They there's called non-shoku. Uh, it, they had male brothels. They had these theater performers that did kabuki would also be doing sex work on the side. And that had a level of status in terms of like the more famous performer, the more desirable they were. And, and Melanesia, which is the very large island that's north of Australia, the Sambia tribe, but also a lot of other tribes had ritualized homosexuality. That was a male rite of passage. I did an episode on this about semen ingestion. Um, where they believe semen ingestion, yeah, swallowing. The, the boys had to swallow the semen of older tribal boys because they thought you couldn't go through puberty without ingesting it. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they. I mean, it's. <laughs> I wouldn't it's, be where I am today without swallowing a few loads, right? <laughs> yeah. They. They. So I learned about the Sambia tribe specifically, but the book I have on it covers 
several tribes. The Sambia tribe would not engage in anal sex, but there were other tribes that did. I mean, their homosexuality in some way, shape, or form has existed in every single continent, every single country, you know, um, the way that it is. So I personally find institutionalized homosexuality to be the most interesting. Institutionalized homosexuality. So that can involve like pederasty or let me take that back. I also, I, I'm really fascinated by cultural forms of homosexuality. So situations where I think that you have um, like an unrestrained sexual expression that lends itself to a more bisexual framework of, of humans expressing themselves sexually in a very open way that includes both sexes. Oh, I see. Okay. Right, right, right. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. And not to like uh, make it this whole like um, student becomes a teacher thing, but I think that you might find this interesting. I'm Filipino and in the Philippines, uh, there are like shaman, right? Uh, And they're mostly uh, found in like the rural parts of the Philippines. And there's something uh, there called the Babaylan, B-A-B-A-Y-L-A-N. And it's a mostly feminine, uh, a feminine dominant role within the tribes of the Philippines. But here's the thing, and it, it may or may not be related to this conversation, but I found it interesting is that when there are feminine presenting men, they are seen automatically as like religious leaders. Oh, that's cool. Very right. Like, uh, you are considered a woman in all aspects with the exception of uh the ability to give birth like so basically a drag queen or uh like a very effeminate uh, man is automatically seen as like a shaman so they'll be the ones who do the healing and like the the religious rituals and there's also a dark side to it and some engage in black magic <laughs> so uh queer witches hey i mean i love that right hey you might want to do a whole episode on that i think it's really interesting part of of my culture's history but i I encourage everyone listening to this to really get into the whole uh history of gay sex because it is just absolutely interesting and filled with so much like information that i feel like it shapes the way that we should think about gay sex now and we cannot continue this conversation without bringing up a very certain doctor by the name of Alfred Kinsey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So let's talk about him. So Alfred Kinsey played a really large role in not just laying laying the foundation of our understanding of human sexuality and behavior, but also statistical evidence of that, and then laying the framework for – the gay rights movement in kind of an indirect way. When he showed how common homosexuality was, it gave a voice to gay people because they realized how much more of them that there were and that not only how common it was and how like truly natural it is, um, but also kind of like a strength through numbers thing uh, in terms of being able to mobilize and and you know become activists. His book, Sexuality of the Human Male, was like a New York Times bestseller. And I mean, stuff like that is not typically a popular read across general right. audiences. Right. Um, 
I own a copy of it that I did for one of my my podcast episodes, and it's it's very dense. I only read the part about homosexuality. For the most part, it's well Which done. That's all you need to know. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the most part, it's really well done. There's some stuff that's really controversial around sexual expression of of preadolescence. Sorry, which book is that? Sexual behavior in the human male. Yeah, or? yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, he did one on on women that was not well received because people didn't want to know that their grandmother still yeah. had sexual feelings and masturbated, and it kind of ruined his also, career. Like, and he died. Yeah, not long after. Um, yeah. Also, I don't really trust like a male OBGYN. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, he was able to elucidate a lot of the the way that humans behave, and it was really helpful for having a very like modern view of sexuality. And he also provided a lot of statistical evidence that did not exist beforehand. His sample sizes were, I want to say there were like 5,000 men that wow. he interviewed. I'd love to meet 5,000 men. No, that's a, actually, no, I take that back. That's a nightmare. <laughs> Before that, the, some of the studies were maybe a couple hundred max, maybe. Right. Which is not a great sample size. No. And also, you know, statistical sciences were in their infancy at that time. What does he need 5,000 men for? Like, what is he looking for? What data is he collecting? So, I mean, he was looking at everything from, you know, how often men masturbate to who they have sex with, when they have sex with them. He even talked about, like, bestiality and stuff like that. Um, what? Yeah. There, there are definitely examples of um, bestiality that he uncovered. I, you know, I think it gets lonely on farms. <laughs> So I you mean, start to name your animal counterpart. Oh my god! Ew. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! And then comes the birth of a human-pig hybrid abomination. Oh my god! Yeah. If, if when you look at studies today of human sexuality, like I said, he laid the foundation of it. So the way that um, the spectrum of human sexuality, in terms of from exclusively gay to exclusively straight. He invented a scale that is still viewed today. I've, I've read research on homosexuality that is done a couple of years ago. He's still referenced in it. It's very foundational. It did take a while for him to rebuild, well, not him, for his institute to be rebuilt because um, there were a lot mm. of scandals for a while. Um, I mean, when you're talking about sex, you're going to be <laughs> like scrutinized scandals left and right. Yeah. The, the, so it's, I want to say it's at University of Indiana. It almost got shut down for a while and defunded. Um, Ooh, but it, you know, it was part of the sexual, it was part of the sexual revolution. If I can talk, you know, that's something that America and maybe other parts of the West went through 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and he was very impactful in it. You know, he was a household name, which how many sexologists are household names? I mean, he also was one of the he did not invent sexology, but he created it for what it is today. Sexology was something that really didn't come about until like 1870s, kind of, but it was really like into the 1900s that you began to have a little bit more honest of an approach about it. He was pretty unbiased. Which unbiased. Unbiased, like, yeah. I mean, the way that they talk about homosexuality is not, you know. I'm talking about before. Not in a negative light, right. Well, or you just had, I mean, so one of the foundations of sexology way back in the day was was Freud, and he would come up with these reasons why gay people would engage in homosexuality as kind of like a defect 
Obviously, we know that's not true, but... Yeah, or like how Masters and Johnson called same-sex relations deviant. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. So that, that was the importance of Kinsey, is that he really approached it from a very unbiased, neutral, academic approach that was non-judgmental. I wonder if he was gay. Um, he was bi. He was married to a woman, Ooh. Uh, but he was openly bisexual. Ooh, I love that. Like, yeah. Right at a three. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember if he engaged in orgies, but there were times that he was involved at least on studying orgies and sexual behavior. I think some of maybe his researchers had orgies. I can't remember off the top of my head. I would have prepared better for this today if I had not <laughs> forgotten about the orgy portion of his research. Um, I believe his wife would bring food for post-orgy snacks. Maybe mid-orgy, hey, I don't babe, know. I just have to do a double penetration for research only. I promise yeah. I'm still going to go home for dinner. Yeah. I mean, I would, that, that's a dream job. Like, to have sex for studying and research. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that is great. I'm probably like a 5.9 somewhere on the on the Kinsey scale because I have been with women before. It was in my escorting thing, but I am like going to be attracted to men. Like six being like the ultimate gay. I'm definitely a 5.9, like solid 5.9. I think so. <laughs> Listen, hot is hot. Tail is tail. If somebody wants to get with this, why not? <laughs> well, there you go. Right? Belonging on the list of household names. Alfred Kinsey, Masters and Johnson, and Sex Ed with Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Now, knowing all of this, Stuart, like with your uh, research and the amount of information that you've collected throughout the time that you've done your podcast, where do you think the trend is going to be going in terms of uh, the discussion with same-sex relations, queer behavior. Like, I, for me personally, I noticed that, like, Gen Z and going forward, like, everyone just feels so comfortable being gay. Like, everyone's gay now. Like, we're just not special anymore. <laughs> you have cultural changes, and then you have political movements. And I think that you have, the two are kind of competing, and they're not necessarily complementary to each other. You have people that are viewing sexuality in a lot more of a liberal way. But you have like the don't say gay bill in Florida. You have restrictions on On um, sex work and porn. The Sesta Foster thing. The what? The Sesta Foster thing, like with sex work and porn. Oh, that like, you know, they they don't want to talk about sexuality in schools. Yeah. Yeah. You have certain restrictions that are being put in Eastern Europe. Um, You have far-right political groups that are becoming more and more popular in other parts of the Western world. Mm. Even here in Canada, it's disgusting. Like, they refuse to update the sexual uh, education model. And, like, there's a bit of a checkered history with something called a fruit machine, which was a thing that was designed to uh, root out gay men in military service, which is, like, so stupid. Oh, yeah. Uh, We had that, too, in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Gross. But then there are more and more countries that are decriminalizing sodomy laws. There's this one, I don't know why I get so caught up on this, but Indonesia has actually been experiencing some regression on gay rights. Indonesia is a really interesting country because they have a very religiously diverse population. 
in the far east of the country, you have mostly Christians, Bali, which everyone thinks of with Eat, Pray, Love, <laughs> and the beautiful temples. I don't want to, I actually don't want to reduce it to that. Bali is a really beautiful place. Bali is very specifically Hindu. Then the rest of the country is Islamic. Now, in the history of, of Indonesia, they took the view of being secular Muslims. So our, most of the population is Muslim, but we're going to have the secular view of how we run our government. It's becoming increasingly less secular, where they are, you know, closing down gay bars, closing down gay bathhouses. Um, certain provinces now have criminalized homosexuality, where you literally have people being caned in public. I, for me, I get really caught up on regression more than progression sometimes. I was talking with someone who lived in China before COVID, but like kind of like the last decade. And he was saying that president of China really doesn't like gay people. So he's been like shutting down gay bars and has had all bathhouses in mainland China shut down. They've been using COVID restrictions to like especially go after gay establishments. Japan just had, as of today, just had, a, or as of yesterday, lost a court case for same-sex marriage. But in other parts of the country, and a couple of years ago, India decriminalized um, sodomy laws that they had. So they repealed they no longer they were no longer criminal. A couple of years ago, Taiwan uh, are they allowed same sex marriage? Actually, you being Filipino, um, Duterte, Duterte, he's no longer president, but yeah, currently. And then the new president just sucks even more. Ugh. Oh, really? Gross. He's the son of a former dictator. Oh, the new president. I know. I ha I, I really wish I could have this quote. I didn't know we we're going to talk about, it, but there's this thing Duterte said at one time. He was like, "Yeah, like I experimented with homosexuality. I don't really like it." <laughs> like he's just I don't know he's like I just prayed more and I stopped sucking dick I don't know I mean it's you know I don't make this up <laughs> oh man he would have a field day with Pacquiao if he were ever in the same circles is the, why, that is, is, the, is, is the new one even more like conservative I mean he's literally the son of the dictator who uh, the Guinness Book of World Records uh basically uh states him as like the worst robbery by a government ever oh really Fernan uh, ferdinand marcos and the new president is ferdinand marcos jr so yeah it's not great <laughs> yeah so duterte his whole thing is war on drugs and uh encouraging vigilante justice and then ferdinand marcos he's all about like uh, allocating funds and embezzling the entire country. So, yay! Oh, God, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know, uh, but like, here's the thing though. Uh, with when it comes to gayness and anything queer in the Philippines, there are no like same-sex laws, but it is so wide widely accepted that um gay people are always in movies and and cinema and tv shows that it's just become a normal thing like there's two drag franchises in the philippines so they don't they don't mind it's just that you know there's really no laws so it, it's a little like towing the line between homophobia and acceptance yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where is it now right i mean it's mm. you know as they say with progress it's two steps forward one steps back and back, yeah you know now in america there the um, Republicans are going after like drag shows. Drag will confuse kids. Literally, what the fuck was the Teletubbies? Like <laughs> I, I don't see how going to a drag show is corrupting the youth. 
you know? Yeah. Also, I've never heard of a drag queen wanting kids at their show. <laughs> well, no, they have kid-friendly drag shows now. And that's the whole point is that they oh, are family-friendly. They literally oh, make it to be age-appropriate for the kids. Republicans just don't like it that a probably gay man is dressed up as a woman, and they don't like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to make it illegal and child Call abuse. out Maddie Morphosis, though. <laughs> it's just, you know... I mean, yeah. so I, I mean, we'll see how things go. Maybe that's weird. So, do you think the world is destined to repeat history in terms of uh, this acceptance, or is it like more of a regression? Or are we kind of just stuck in a butting of heads between the acceptance and the tolerance, and in, or acceptance and intolerance of uh, queer behavior? I mean, there's always going to be homophobia. You can poll, there are, I think it's something like 10% of the US believes that rape, people of two different races shouldn't legally be allowed to get married. What? That's still oh, yeah. a thing that people think about? Oh, yeah. There's a misogyn- it's the anti misogynation laws is what used to. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So there's always going to be fringe people that are, you know, like neo Nazis effectively. And there's also, too, if you look at, at polling, there can be higher support for gay rights than the moral approval of homosexuality. So you can have someone say, I believe gay people should be allowed to get married, but I don't morally approve of homosexuality. I mean, I don't know how you digest that. It's like a good, it's like bittersweet, you know? It's like, well, I'm glad you look, you've used civil rights, but also the science is in. People are, for the most part, born this way. And... Yeah. If you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. Yeah. So, you know, it's 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 fairly nuanced. I mean, honestly, if you if if you were to have that poll and 80, 85% of people support same-sex marriage, I think that's a pretty good place to be. I don't think it's ever gonna be hundred percent. It's never gonna be hundred percent, but at least there is some progress. And some progress is better than no progress, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, things can change a lot politically. And at one time, Germany was one of the most queer-friendly places in the world. And then the Nazis took over, and it became one of the least queer-friendly places in the world. So oh, no. I just, I'm not trying to get dark, but Right, yeah. no, 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 that's totally fine. I mean, that And now of, look how many gays there are in Germany now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's, things can change quickly, although- it's tough because when you look at history, you know, we just live in a totally different place now. And so it, it's, I, I think it'd be unimaginable to have a far back regression, but I don't know. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> no, but you know what I think? It's that if gay people have existed as far back as you said, 12,000 years ago, like in Zimbabwe, I think that gay people will always find a way to thrive and they're always going to have a place. And if history is going to tell me anything, it's that queerness will continue to exist and there's nothing that you can do about it. (laughs) We're here, we're queer, get used to it, right? For sure. For sure. Oh my God, Stuart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Do you want to plug anything to the audience? Yes. I I went on a small leave and I'm going to start working on episodes again soon, but my podcast is The History of Gay Sex. Um, I've got an Instagram page as well, which is some thoughty uh, homoerotic imagery. Mm, and um, I love it. Anyone can reach out to me at gaysexhistory at gmail.com. So I say, uh, out of all the things I talked about today, I have a lot of episodes that cover them. My very first one was on pederasty in, in ancient Greece, as I mentioned. 
Um, I've got two episodes on the history of gay porn, which everyone should check out. And I mean, everyone should check out all of my episodes, obviously. <laughs> They're great. But um, yeah, yeah, no, it was a pleasure uh, being here today. And hopefully I get some new episodes out soon. Thank you, Stuart. Like, you're just amazing. You're full of knowledge and full of intelligence. Everyone listening to this, please just go support the show. Stream History of Gay Sex, stream Sex of a Tim while you're at work or while you're doing the dishes. Every download counts, every rating counts. Because the number is up. <laughs> Absolutely. Play it out loud right? at work. Everyone needs to hear it. Play it out loud, yeah. exactly. And like let your coworkers hear pederasty, aromenos, huh? Anal? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was Stuart and Tim that threw the first brick at Stonewall. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So once again, thank you so much, Stuart, for your knowledge and your wisdom. And to all the listeners that have made it this far into this chaotic-ass conversation, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast because it helps the show. And with that, I wish you all a good night. Bye! Thanks for listening to the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. Sex Ed with Tim is created and produced by me, Tim Lagman. Music is Aces High by Kevin McLeod. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at GaySlutClown and at Sex Ed with Tim. You can also like and follow me on the Sex Ed with Tim Facebook page. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for all your support, you dirty little slut. Mwah!